Hello everyone, it's November 22nd, 2022. This week, Artemis 1 lifted off and is now on its way to the moon. Well, better late than never. Also, Margaret Weidekamp of the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum is going to tell us about her new book, Space Craze. It's a massive show this week, so let's do like Artemis 1 finally did, and lift off. of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So we got some cool photos of Cygnus uh, and its jammed solar array that we were, that we were talking about last week. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, there's a little bit of a blanket stuck in there, right? Although it's not really a blanket, but we got some cool images of, like, of exactly what the inside of a payload fairing looks like and the material that uh, somehow fell into, I guess, a little mechanism that was a... Uh, there to help deploy that solar array. We actually um, found that exact photo while we were talking about it. It did. It didn't make it into the show notes, but yeah, Dennis pointed it out, and I like scrolled down. I was like, "Oh, hey, that's that makes me feel good." Um, <laughs> yeah. And you can you can tell that it's that it's the correct fairing, even if you didn't like look at the source, because you can see the pop top nose cap up at the top and then there are pieces of foam insulation on the ground presumably because somebody was on their hands and knees crawling uh crawling through it which is pretty cool but the the shredded blanket i don't know to you guys it looks to me like uh asbestos pretty much yeah <laughs> <laughs> and, and you can see it's if you look on the comparison picture that uh pete harding had tweeted this this high resolution image we found uh it's it's definitely all around the rotating mechanism <laughs> that uh, uh, extends from the Cygnus out to the solar panel. And so you can see it's got the kind of brackets above and below it, but then right where that rotating mechanism is, it's just covered with this brownish blanket stuff that shouldn't be there. <laughs> All right, so Artemis 1 has finally lifted off. Yay! Yay! That only took how many months or years, depending on how you look at it? Uh, a lot. Right. But <laughs> yeah. Um, and the launch was more or less pretty nominal, I guess we could say. There was a couple of little hiccups, but uh, you know they were able to proceed. I didn't get to watch it because I forgot about what time it was going to be lifting off, and it happened at 1 or something like that, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. I don't remember. Yeah. Mm. I, I tuned in for the beginning of the uh, – the fuel loading and i was like i I told my partner like this is going to be on all night you know i'm just going to like put my laptop over here and it's just going to be on and sorry and then i like realized how far away the launch was and i was like you know what (laughs) (laughs) i'm not staying up for this i'll go ahead and turn it off and then my dad had the absolute gall from the west coast to text me and say that he was going to be staying up for it because it's Mm -hmm. Or he was going to be awake for it because it's not as uh, as bad on the West Coast. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> All right. And then at that point, uh, I got a bunch of work and I tuned out from everything but work all week. <laughs> so, but but ne- neither of you guys were able to tune in for the launch, right? I mean, I could have because I get the West Coast yeah. advantage or at least the mountain yeah. Uh, yeah. advantage. But um, it turned out I just – I go to bed early. Yeah, things to do. And so um, – I ended up having a phenomenal night's sleep, like literally 10 hours, and I didn't wake up at all. Like no interruptions, no cats or loud noises outside or anything. That never happens. What about TLI? Did you guys tune into that? Because I did not. Nope. Nope. That's (laughs) it. We've been terrible. All right. We've been been waiting for this for so long. It just kind of like – Right. Right. 
Do we even like space? <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess the question is, how do we feel about Artemis? I, I mean, I'm glad that it, it finally launched and things are going well, like we said. Um, I guess we should start with just, we should just go down the bullet points that we have here about, uh, you know, some of the details, uh, mm. starting with hurricane damage, because this had to survive. Actually, I didn't follow too closely exactly where Hurricane Nicole hit. Do either of you know? I don't know how bad it was. Was it ever actually a hurricane? I thought it was only a tropical storm. No, they, they, they managed to get it to uh, Category 1, apparently. Oh, wow. So it looks like it kind of wow it did a very much of an very much an S shape where if you drew if you started writing your S from the bottom up and so it kind of went out east into the Atlantic uh, happily missing uh, it looks like Cuba and um, you know Haiti and all them and then it kind of dove in the middle of the S due west and then kind of cut across Florida so it looks like it went right towards the cape <laughs> okay so like right through the yeah. cape okay yeah so it's unlike ian i remember was bad because it i think it went up up the entire coast the mm. western coast and kind of just that was not good <laughs> to be to to be at a, a, a an oblique angle like that and so anyway yeah so that's that's what nicole did well apparently the winds were strong enough to not do too much damage really when you think about the fact that it was hit by a hurricane but um it did take off about three meters of rtv which is room temperature vulcanized silicone um which is um mm. this type of caulking which is used uh, to seal a gap between the crew module and uh the launch abort motor um which i didn't know that that's something that they did but it makes sense i mean you have all these gaps between the various modules and stages mm. and so forth so um, that got stripped off and you can kind of see in some photos that it just, you know, came loose, which is not surprising. But maybe what is a little bit surprising is that NASA said, you know, that's an acceptable risk and let's just press on. So, yeah, they did. <laughs> maybe because, uh, I mean, there's no meat bags on board. And so mm -hmm. an abort motor functioning properly <laughs> might not be the most important thing. But but I guess it is kind of still surprising because we, we remember we talked about whether or not they would fire it. Uh, if they did have an off-nominal launch, uh, just to see how it goes. But uh, I think we came to the conclusion that it wasn't uh, armed or or properly yeah. set up for launch. So. Kind of what I remember, too. And I'm wondering what the SEAL, um, what realistically could happen that could cause a problem, I guess is what I want to know. Like, I, I don't know what sits between the module and the abort moto. I guess it would just be water and maybe some insects might fly into something. I don't know. I think it also might be a, a aerodynamic issue. It, it would be kind of surprising if that was the case, but... I mean, it's a pretty small gap, so I wouldn't think. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. I, I've got a very basic question. Um, so the, 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 what was it, three meters or whatever, the, the, the long amount that was missing, that's not anywhere near the launch abort system, is it? That looks like that's where the... The capsule kind of meets the, uh, I guess, the service part. Okay, so my my guess is that this is at the base of the shell. Yeah, it's got an arrow shell, so I bet you that's at the base of the arrow shell, yep. which makes a lot of sense for the <clears throat> the damage photo. You can see up at the top there's the the crew access, or you know right. maybe a maintenance access hatch or something. I think Leon Running Man, yeah, hit hit the nail on the head of what I'm struggling with is that the launch escape system. <laughs> Pull like yeah, it extends further down than just the little towery part that draws your eye. Okay, thank you, Leon. Yeah, that, <laughs> that wasn't Im immediately clear from the description of the joint, but yeah. That, okay, and so that explains why it's caulking and not something else, right? Like it, it's it's a severable joint or mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. Like that that that's gonna open up. But yeah, so there was no way of uh, fixing that on the pad. 
Uh, and again, NASA said it was acceptable, so they went forward with it. I've got a caulking gun upstairs. They could have, like, I could have, <laughs> you know, FedEx it out there or should something. Have, could have sent out the Ben team. That's what I tell them. Yeah, <laughs> there's a red team, then there's a Ben team. Just a, bunch, a couple of guys named Ben. And so the next issue uh, were some liquid hydrogen leaks. Um, and now this wasn't happening on the vehicle itself. This was something that was happening at the base of the mobile launcher. Um, and interestingly, um, you you know, like if you watched the live broadcast, uh, which again, uh, we didn't see it, but they did send out three red team crew members. I think that's what they're called, or red crew. Um, I don't know what that signifies. I don't know if we've talked about the various crew and i'm not too familiar myself but uh these are people who go out to the vehicle and i they're pretty brave because this is a fully fueled rocket and they're going right up to it and they're doing like whatever they have to do and they had to tighten some bolts i think or something like that in order to uh stop that hydrogen leak so just imagine if you're standing around liquid hydrogen that's pulling around you perhaps i don't i I mean i don't know if that was happening um to them directly but they had to fix that little issue uh and then i guess they you know uh evacuated to a safe distance (laughs) and then i think from that point the launch happened or did did this happen next i'm not too familiar with what happened with the bad ethernet switch oh as far as the timing goes yeah the the ethernet switch would have been after the red team you know physically went out to the pad at 10 t minus yeah two hours 25 minutes or so range range went down basically they basically said one of their ass one of their required launch assets was down and so range went no go oh it's uh, one of their radar packages they weren't getting data from so range went no go and then um they tracked the issue down it was uh a, a switch somewhere <laughs> was bad like a uh, like a router sense of the word mm. switch so they replaced pulled uh Probably pulled the Ethernet switch out of a um, out of a rack, slid in a new one, and they're good. Uh, real quick, the questions about the RTV uh, were answered in the Space News article. Let me read this real quick. The concern was that more RTV could come off during flight, and I'm assuming uh, having this is like a debris impact concern. Um, but they actually confirmed. Seraphin confirmed that. The loss of the RTV doesn't pose an aerodynamic issue. It it might, but uh, it shouldn't be enough to make a difference. But the the additional concerns in in addition to the debris were maybe it's going to cause uh, aerodynamic turbulence and also additional heating from the air flowing past and getting caught on that lip. But like like you said, ultimately they didn't uh, worry about it. And then another interesting thing that happened, and this is by Eric Berger, who says that NASA did not provide a reason. But but during remote camera pickup from the launch complex, the photographers were told to not take any pictures of the launch tower. And we were kind of speculating as to why that was. There were some people on Twitter who were saying that maybe it's because there was some kind of damage and that maybe they didn't want them taking pictures. But I don't know why that people would be. People being Eric Berger, <laughs> said, he said that he had sources who said that it, there was some damage that they wanted to hide. But yeah, <laughs> people. But but I, I wouldn't think hiding damage for the sake of it being damaged, right? I mean, that's not something that NASA normally would do. I wouldn't think that they're that insecure about damage being done. But sure, why, why not? Reason. They they decided not to live stream one of the hot fires, or what? Not one of the hot fires. One of the one of the cold, or one of the the tanking tests. What are they called? Uh, wet dress rehearsals. And like, it's. I don't think it was because they were secretive. I think it was because they're like, we want to get this done, and we don't have time to to set up a, a live stream but like people interpreted it as them being secretive so like if right. you're gonna judge uh n- the likelihood of nasa trying to hide something yeah i mean it's not 
not crazy. It's not unreasonable. But but in Eric Berger's defense, he did speculate that it could be that or it could be what it turned out to be, which is a matter of ITAR. Well, and what's crazy to me is that, um, yeah, Eric tweeted, NASA did not provide a reason. But then there's a tweet from uh, Chris Davenport over at WAPO, the Washington Post, and he posted a screen cap of his email from NASA um, which specifically cited there are ITAR restrictions. Although that that was twenty minutes after Eric Berger's uh, sure tweet, where his sources said that there was damage. Yeah, 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 right. But I guarantee that Eric would have had access to that statement from NASA if mm. he would have asked like Ars Technica's photographer, because I'm sure that their photographer was out there. I understand. I see. I, see. It, it, I mean, it is what it is. It's, it's not like he was being malicious or anything. It's just like, yeah, didn't do a great job on this one. And, and I think it's interesting that it's, it's really a matter of, um, it's not like the mobile launch tower has been this big uh, censored black block, you know, <laughs> in all the images we've been seeing, uh, even when uh, it is exposed and you don't have the, the rocket there. But uh, apparently it's a matter of the high resolution shots that some of the photographers photographers could have taken post-launch. So if you see images of the, the the naked launch tower and you think like, ooh, well, how come these are not <laughs> uh, tar to oblivion um, or hidden away? But that's that's the yeah. explanation there is that the yeah, photographers did, did we mention some- Did we mention that it's specifically the umbilical plates? I don't think uh, we did. Yeah. Are- okay. So yeah, it's the umbilical plates and like those aren't always visible, right? They they have towers that they can retract into or that they do retract into. Um, and so like if, if you go and reconfigure the pad, that's one of the things you can do is just tuck those guys away and, you know, put, put a, you know, a sock over it or something. It's, it's not a problem. So of course uh, the Orion spacecraft might be the, you know, the big headline grabber, but there's a lot of those uh, CubeSats, those 10 that were launched. And admittedly, you know, the news is covering and talking about them a lot. Uh, Jeff Faust had some information coming from uh, Mike Serafin, but also some of it was a little inaccurate, turns out. I'm, I'm guessing Mike Serafin, his head has to be spinning right now, right? This is the, the <laughs> Artemis manager. And so um, he, it's understandable. And so I don't mean to throw that as shade, but he, he misreported Omotanashi's status a little bit. So uh, instead, Parabolic Arc is a really good source for kind of uh, what the status of the uh, spacecraft are. And so six of them are operational, which is great. And then there's four of them that are in different states of uh, from not so good to really bad. Lunir or Lunir, I'm not, I've never actually heard it said, uh, but is uh, this is one where um, it's a, uh, a Lockheed Martin uh, lunar flyby one. It's going to take some images of the moon. Uh, as it goes whipping by. And uh, it got a weaker than expected signal. And so engineers are evaluating the next steps to what to do about it. Uh, So we'll see. Hopefully that turns out to still work out well for us. Um, Then there's Near-Earth Asteroid Scout and Team Miles, which as of two days ago from Parabolic Arc's reporting, no signal yet received. But as I'm talking right now, uh, one of the smaller dishes at Goldstone uh, is currently sending an up signal to near-Earth Asteroid Scout. So I think it's still trying to, to chat with it. And so um, it's really cool. If you've never seen the Deep Space Network Now link, <laughs> you can mm-hmm. see what all the dishes are communicating to. And so, yeah, so they're still reaching out apparently. And um, 
hopefully uh, they'll we'll hear back from them again because near Earth asteroid scout is cool. That's a, that's the, uh, the the solar sail mission, and then T miles is a, a plasma propulsion uh, tech demo, and then uh, probably the one that's in the the worst shape right now is uh, a Motonashi, which would have been you know the smallest lunar lander ever, and so a CubeSat lunar lander which is such a cool idea but unfortunately it is tumbling and so not only is that tough for communications that's also tough for charging the spacecraft um and so it's they're they're still working on it but i guess you wouldn't really want to hold your breath for that one but yeah and, and it's worth remembering just the uh the progress of how these were released right these are in the the adapter between the orion spacecraft and the upper stage and so after the orion breaks off and goes you know on its way, um, the ICPS upper stage has this ring with the CubeSats all kind of nested around the rim, and then they're on a timer to basically shoot them all, all 10 of them out. And so they all deployed successfully. It's just been a matter of what their status is afterwards. So mm-hmm. that's kind of where we are with the, with, the, the, with the ride-alongs. But we also have the little on Capstone, which congratulations to uh, Advanced Space and Terran Orbital and NASA for reaching the first ever NIRHO or NRHO, near rectilinear halo orbit. And so it's it successfully entered. <laughs> I don't really know what else to, more to say about that other than uh, super cool and very exciting to have a CubeSat have the honor, right? Talk about like a little cap, a little feather in the cap of CubeSats, that it was a little yeah. small CubeSat to be able to mm-hmm. be the pathfinder for this uh, type of uh, orbit that's never been done before. So, uh, Omotenashi is obviously a, a named after the Japanese concept of hospitality. But did you know that Omotenashi is also a backronym? Uh-uh. It stands for Outstanding Moon Exploration Technologies Demonstrated by Nano Semi Hard Impactor. So, that's Outstanding <laughs> Moon O M O Technologies T E Nano. And a semi hard impactor SHI. Um, and that's a, that's a pretty impressive uh, level of, of backronymization. <laughs> you just made a new word. Nailed it. Backronymitude. Uh, so finally, uh, the translunar injection. Uh, so let's talk about that. I found on YouTube uh, one of the latest videos by Fraser Kane. Um, this is not uh, his work, but he did reference a very good video that kind of shows, like you know, how the uh, next couple of weeks are going to play out and how the Orion spacecraft is going to be going into its retrograde or its distant retrograde orbit mm. around the moon and then coming back. And it's pretty interesting because, like a lot of the graphics you see, you see the Earth and then you see the moon and they're not moving, and that's kind of that doesn't give you a good idea of what's actually going on so it it, it kind of helped me a lot like in order to picture how you know this mm-hmm. all plays out um pretty cool so yeah there's going to be an outbound powered flyby uh which is called an oft scheduled for the 21st at 7 44 a.m so that's tomorrow at some time tomorrow morning as we record this um and that'll put it into its distant retrograde orbit or it'll put it on the trajectory for one um and this is mission critical so basically if they miss it they miss everything um i don't know mm. what happens at that point i guess it just goes into a long i guess like a long orbit around the earth right would it just be a very highly elliptical you know like kind of useless a, orbit that just yeah just throws it out there and doesn't really bring it near the moon at all i'm not sure what would happen in that case um yeah i'm not familiar with the with the dynamics 
It's definitely not a that's, free that's return a trajectory, question. that's for sure. And I guess, yeah, it'd be like it'd be like in one of those ones where, right, we get these Apollo stages that <laughs> are uh it'd just be floating around in cislunar space still, but mm-hmm. not and you're not not out. passing near the moon, which is kind of important <laughs> as part of the uh what they want uh it to do. Well, not not passing near the moon now, but right, isn't it already- Or ever, I guess, if it if it Oh really? Why why well, I guess if ever? they screw it up. Well, I think it passes pretty close to the moon but in order to get into that orbit it has to do a two and a half minute burn right which will then put it into uh the distant retrograde orbit so yeah i believe i mean um correction burns aside i believe when it did its um tli translunar injection burn uh something like 90 minutes after launch whatever it put itself into an orbit that will intersect with the moon or will will get it up to the moon and then we're talking about the burn where it gets where it ca- it like captures into a distant retrograde orbit. Mm-hmm. So you're saying right, that I, I it, should I should clarify I, I I'm ignoring the first pass. I guess if it doesn't go into this distant retrograde orbit, then okay, it cruises by the moon on its uh, outbound trajectory, but then it's now and, just floating around random semi randomly in yeah. cis lunar space. I mean, if it right, so it'll its orbit gets changed as it does basically a poorly designed gravity boost from the moon but like not categorically like one step back from categorically if you encounter a moon especially in a system where you only have one moon if you encounter that moon once and it changes your orbit you will re-encounter it at some point in the future barring other you know avoidance maneuvers when that happens, who knows? Because this, the whole I, if I, if I am seeing that trajectory correctly in the video that you shared, David, this distant retrograde orbit basically puts it very far past the moon. So the right, that's one thing that they keep pointing out is that this is going to be the furthest mm-hmm. that a crew rated vehicle has ever gone, which is really mm-hmm. cool. Even if there's just mannequins and Snoopy on board, <laughs> but but then when it comes back to the moon, then I guess they do. It'll dive in nice and close like it's supposed to as part of that DRO. And then I guess they do the second, uh, another burn. Yeah. Or sorry, two more burns. Sorry, you actually have it in the notes. My bad. Then it does two more burns for earth return. So if it doesn't get into the DRO, then that probably jeopardizes the earth return as well. Oh yeah. Which yeah, right. yeah. testing the heat yeah. shield and reentry, right. has got to be one of the tippy top things that they want to test on Orion. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Like DRO is such a fun lunar orbit option because the, the capture burns happen, like the, the capture burn happens after you've done your closest approach to the moon and that, and that gets you captured into DRO. And then to depart from DRO and go back home, you do that burn. And then after that burn, you have your closest approach. Like it's, hmm. it's a really cool, uh, weird part of you know the lagrangian orbits that that we now have access to with you know modern computing and and the the relatively high fidelity range finding and our relatively high precision navigation tools that we have today we can we mm. can do this kind of cool stuff but that that is neat. And, i had no idea about the burns being like not correspond or being before yeah. Or sorry, after and before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, closest approaches. And, and like that, this is what's so cool about these orbits is like, I believe I'm representing this correctly, but I could still be wrong about some of the, some of the basic functionality of this type of an orbit. And like, that's what I love about our weird, like, uh, three body 
uh, orbits that we can do these days is like the three of us are, are pretty well versed in orbital mechanics, uh, no pun intended, but like we can still be surprised and have misconceptions. And like, there's so much learning to do. It just, it's lovely. All right, so let's do three short and sweets this week. And Ben, what's the first? All right, Hermius completes key tests towards hypersonic aircraft. Venture-backed Hermius has completed a major test of his engine called Chimera at the Notre Dame Turbo Machinery Laboratory. The testing, completed over a three-month period, successfully shifted the Chimera engine from turbojet to ramjet power several times, with the transition taking place between Mach 2 and Mach 3. Hermius plans to build the first ever reusable hypersonic aircraft with Chimera designed, built, and tested at a cost of only 18 million US dollars. Part of those cost savings come from using an off-the-shelf J85 turbojet for its engine. Next up, busy week of spacewalking. Space stations got a lot of hands-on care last week as three EVAs by three different nations took place. Kicking it off, NASA astronauts Josh Cassida and Frank Rubio completed the first of three planned spacewalks to install the new iRosa solar arrays on the ISS. A day and a half later, Shenzhou 14 Taikonauts Chen Dong and Sai Xuzhi exited the Wenxian module and performed a 5.5-hour EVA connecting Tiangong Space Station's core module to the new Mengtian lab. Finally, back on the ISS, Russian cosmonauts Sergei Prokopyev and Dmitry Pelin began work on the eventual transfer of a radiator from Rosvet to Nauka, removing brackets on the former and setting up a platform on the latter. Next week, two more EVAs are planned for the U.S. and Russian orbital segments of the ISS. And then finally, Japan formalizes its commitment. The Japanese government has officially agreed to extending its presence on the International Space Station. It has also signed off on JAXA's role in Gateway, where it will be providing the life support system, thermal controls, batteries, and camera on the IHAB module, as well as the batteries for both ESA's Esprit refueling module and NASA's HALO module. JAXA will also develop a modified version of the HTV cargo vehicle called the HTVX-G to deliver supplies to Gateway no later than 2030. In return, NASA has agreed to fly a JAXA astronaut on a crew mission to Gateway, though it has not yet finalized that agreement. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and we have some interesting uh, stuff brought up in our Discord that uh, Ben wants to talk about. <laughs> okay, so to just two real quick ones. Um, uh, Chubby Tarkosi uh, posted a link to a real-time uh, Artemis tracker. It's not working for us right now, and I did not click on it when Chubby originally posted it, so I, I never got to see it. But it looks like it's just like a, a dedicated viewer, like a fork of uh, NASA Eyes. So we'll also include a link to NASA Eyes with the um, the query param or the search params and the URL will take you directly to uh, Artemis so you can watch it uh, float through space. The other one is from uh, Delta V. Thank you so much. Uh, and Delta V posted the uh, Rocket 4 payload user's guide, uh, the Astra Rocket 4. Um, and so that's pretty cool. Astra tweeted it. Um, and then from their tweet, there's a, a link to the actual uh, payload or the, the actual uh, user's guide uh, PDF. So thank you to both of you. 
Okay, today we have Margaret Weidekamp. She's the curator and chair of the Space History Department at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. She is also the author of a new book that's coming out called Space Craze. Welcome, Margaret. How's it going? It is going very well. I'm delighted to get to talk to you. Oh, we, we're so excited, too. I got to say, I've been flipping through the book, and like it kills me that I haven't had more time to just sit and soak this up because there are so many good stories, so many good descriptions of different objects and like so many good photos too. It's, it's really delightful. Uh, thank you for writing it. <laughs> thank you. Well, that's what I wanted to do is in some ways make this a bit of a behind the scenes tour curator led mm -hmm. through the collection that we have at the National Air and Space Museum. And then essentially in the book, talk your ear off with different stories about why I think those are important, how I see them as connected, and how I see them, in fact, as unified in telling one story about how Americans in particular have been excited about space flight since the era of Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon and started in the late 1920s. Real quick, could you tell us how you came to work at the Smithsonian? Like, it, it it's such a I don't know, lofty institution, like everybody looks up to the Smithsonian and especially the Air and Space Museum for space nerds like us, like it's, you know, it's a Mecca. So like, what got you to where you are now? And, and like, how did you get interested in space in particular? Well, it's that place for me too, which is why it's a thrill to get to work there. I started my career as a women's historian and my first book was a history of a women's astronaut testing program from the late 1950s. As a part of that, I had a chance to do a year at the NASA headquarters history office, and that's really where I fell in love with space history. Now, I had always been a bit of a science fiction nerd. I grew up, I'm exactly the right age to have grown up as a Star Wars kid, and I fell in love with Star Trek as a young adult, um, watching The Next Generation and then finding my way back into the original series through the films. And that had always just been a part of who I was and what I liked, but I didn't necessarily see it as connected to kind of my scholarly life. But the chance to be at NASA headquarters for a year really got me interested in space history. And I just started seeing so many connections between the way that spaceflight had been imagined and the way that spaceflight had actually been executed. And so I started teaching a course when I was a graduate student, and I taught it for a few years when I finished my degree on space history and science fiction, gender, race, society, and space is what I called it. And it's really on that that I then got connected to the National Air and Space Museum. And when they had a position for a cultural historian to come in and be the curator of the collection that included both the space science fiction objects, a few studio models, but mostly commercially available memorabilia, toys and games and collectibles, things like that. Hmm. And then the memorabilia of the actual space program, that's where all of those connections really started to come together. And it's out of that work that I've been doing for over 18 years now that this book comes. So you actually gave me a great, uh, a great segue because 
uh, like, you know, we're space nerds and we really love like archival work. Mm -hmm. Um, in fact, we recently talked to, uh, Mike Stewart of the virtual AGC program. He's actually listening in right now. Hi, Mike. And, uh, virtual AGC, uh, is doing a lot of archival work of software, but, um, that group of people is also doing a lot of like hardware restoration and archive, uh, archival work. Um, and like, that's, that's something that a lot of, space nerds see a lot of value in. Um, I wanted to hear your perspective on why we should also care about the archival of cultural objects like your book is filled with. How does that impact um, space nerds and space fans and, and the space industry? I think there are ways in which it's so obvious that I'm not sure any, why anybody hasn't done it before in quite this way. Um, you can often tell that we're big fans of space stuff from the stickers that are on our water bottles or our laptops or the kinds of tchotchkes that we have in our cubicles or on our desks or in the shelves of our uh, bedrooms or living rooms. And you know, you are often introduced to space stuff, whether it's it's fantastical or realistic through toys and games and things like that as a kid. So as a scholar, I was trained to really work with documents, to go to an archive and deal with people's letters or institutional records or oral history or things like that, that would tell us a story about what was going on in the past and allow us to understand that as just as contingent as anything that's happening today. The people in the past didn't know how things were going to play out any more than we do. And they were working in the environment of the culture they were in at the time, even as they themselves were starting to shape that culture. So toys and games and three-dimensional objects become a really rich source when a historian, I think, looks at them and thinks about the ways that for toys, the play is kind of scripted by the shape and the form of the toy, what the way that you play with a ray gun or the way that you play with an action figure, even as then on the other side, the player always has the chance to kind of defy the narrative that has been sold to them with the toy. So I thought that it really became a rich place for me to put that in conversation with what I was finding in the documents, in the archives, and doing these kind of deep dives into these various slices of American history and trying to do a relentlessly chronological look at both fiction and reality and the way that they are coming out of a common culture driven by people who are immersed in that. And so there's not some magic mirror that fiction writers or engineers hold up to culture that makes it a reflection. It's because they're embedded in it just as we are now. And so working with objects, I thought, brings it into a form that people understand. They kind of Most people know that they might leave behind records or diaries or other kinds of uh, documents that a historian might come to, but we can look around our house or our living room, our apartment, our office, and see all of the things that testify to who we are and what we identify with. And starting to unpack those and how those have changed over time really told a fascinating story. So one of the chapters that drew my eye uh, was chapter three, which is about uh, early space flight and the the way that American the the American public's enthusiasm uh, for space kind of fluctuated. Could you give us a little bit of a summary of of what kind of memorabilia was produced 
um, during the early human spaceflight era? Sure. We have a wonderful collection of things at the National Air and Space Museum that testify to John Glenn's flight, which is the first American to orbit the Earth. So the very first person to go into space is Yuri Gagarin, who flies in April of 1961. And um, following that in May, the Americans send up Alan Shepard on a suborbital flight, kind of up into space, right back down. But Gagarin's flight had been orbital. And so it wasn't until February of 1962, when John Glenn is able to duplicate that, that there's some sense that now the Americans are actually in this space race. And the explosion of enthusiasm has been cited by historians as being even greater in magnitude, enthusiasm, uh, excitement, stuff than what you saw around Apollo 11 in 1969. So I start the chapter with a McCoy pottery cookie jar that was in the shape of Friendship 7, John Glenn's spacecraft. And what I start with is the fact that I've seen better examples, more pristine, more perfect examples of this cookie jar, which looks like it's a black enameled pottery cookie jar that's kind of that teardrop shape that you get with a space capsule and you can take the top off and that's where you can reach in and get the cookies. But it came from a family where the gentleman who sent it to the museum remembered that his family was very excited about the space race and was particularly excited about John Glenn's flight. And so this was something that came to his family from a display that they had seen at a five and nine or Montgomery Ward store, the kind of store that would have been very typical in a town at the time in the early 90s. 1960s, and his mother was a stay-at-home mom who was a baker. And so he remembers it being filled with her homemade cookies and just becoming a bit of a centerpiece of the family kitchen. And from that, then, I think it really tells a rich story about that family and many families like it across the country that found a way to celebrate John Glenn's flight through a celebration of a thing. We also got uh, from Michigan a bedroom blanket, um, a bed blanket that had actually been hemmed in the sides. This gentleman who gave it remembered that both he and his brother had matching ones on their beds that they got in the early 60s and that stayed there until they went off to college. And um, wonderfully colorful representation of John Glenn climbing into Friendship 7. And so through those things, as well as through stamps and pins, um, buttons, we can see a kind of outpouring of enthusiasm that gets put solidified really into objects that then people want to have that demonstrates their excitement about that the same way that you might buy a t-shirt for you know a band or a game or something that you have affection for and when you're wearing it then you run into somebody who sees that someone who came into these homes might see this and uh, connect with that excitement about spaceflight And so that was a real set of things that I wanted to use in the 1960s, especially to dig into these stories that we have about the ways that the first forays of human spaceflight, beginning with the Mercury program and ending at the end of that decade into 1972 with the Apollo lunar landings, really speaks to a kind of outpouring of excitement because people recognized in the moment that this was something historic that was happening. 
It's not like a lot of historic things that we only realize were important in hindsight. This was something in the moment people knew it was, and they wanted some sort of a souvenir, a talisman, a memento that would speak to that. And so we have a rich collection at the museum, and that was one of the real places I wanted to dig in with this book. I, I tend to describe myself as like a bleeding heart liberal or a bleeding heart progressive. Like I, I really care about social justice. So who was not able to participate in this, you know, capitalistic like collection and, and expression of, of pride um, was like, I'm assuming that this wasn't available to everybody. Not everybody has expendable income. Um, and then did that, enfranchisement or disenfranchisement um of like how did that affect the people who could or or could not uh purchase uh souvenirs and things like that um and and i guess like as two examples of people who i would expect to to be a little disenfranchised might be the the wives of astronauts even though there's a fantastic example of, of um memorabilia owned uh, by uh, the wife of a uh, aeronautical engineer, mm-hmm. um, or maybe even like um, further disenfranchised people, like black people who were interested in the space program but could not be an astronaut candidate. Something that seems interesting to me is like the idea of somebody who wants to go into space but can't because of their race being able to go out and buy uh, memorabilia can can be a little bit of a a salve on that and like help them still feel invested even though they are literally being rejected. I start the book with Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon because the form of those short stories, then comic strips, then radio programs, then movie serials really played in a strong way off of the narrative form, the storytelling that had been set in Westerns. So it features a muscular hero, a sidekick uh, who is often very youthful, an advisor who is a kind of older, avuncular character. The female lead tends to be also an adventurer, but has a terrible uh, tendency to be captured. And so uh, you've got the kind of love interest with some moxie. And then they are all on board a named spaceship, which is very much like the named horse that is also a character in a Western. And they are heading off to a space-based place at the point of a gun. And other scholars have looked at the ways that American space science fiction really played off of the Western. But I don't think that other people have looked at the ways that that defines then a conversation about who can be the adventurer, who can be the lead, who can be the explorer, and what the expectations are. And what we see is the form that gets set up in the 1930s is a particularly American form, and it has that power because it's drawing on the form of the Western. And I wanted to talk about its Americanness, not because I think that stands in for it being universal, but because I think it's particularly culturally grounded. But that then carries a whole set of values with it about who can do the adventuring, 
how that's racialized, how that is gendered. And we see that especially as those forms go into early television, it is relentlessly white. The female adventurer who in the 1930s might actually be rather active by the 1950s becomes rather passive um, and increasingly buxom and increasingly uh, intended to be captured and carried literally off screen and then not seen or heard Mm. from again for a while. But that also then sets a whole set of expectations about what it means to be that kind of exceptional person who might be active Mm. and effective in this kind of a space context. So in the 1950s, not out of keeping for the rest of television or the rest of movies at the time, but very indicative of space science fiction, it becomes this kind of relentlessly white heteronormative form. And in that way, it sets a set of expectations such that even small deviations uh, become ways that the person is othered, set apart. So there was a show called Space Patrol, a kind of uh, space-based police show. It was originally a local program in Los Angeles. It becomes a national program. It's part of the very early years of television. And the heroes of that are uh, so white and blonde that, in fact, one of the characters who's a brunette, that's the signifier that she used to be an alien. Right. So so um, her brown hair sets her apart as not like (laughs) those who we would expect to be doing the adventuring. And we see that then played out in the toys and also these expectations of who would be able to take on that viewpoint of being the lead in the adventure. So I start with Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon ray guns, because holding and playing with a ray gun, there's an expectation that any child could take on the Buck Rogers blonde hero persona, but it takes a whole other toy, the Wilma Deering gun that's created the year later in 1935 to create a smaller, less expensive, important in the Great Depression, but the girl's toy that, you know, you would need a different toy in order to be able to take on the girl's perspective. And there's no toys sold that allow you to take on the perspective of the Mongol hordes from the Buck Rogers franchise or Ming the Merciless um, from the Flash Gordon franchise. And you can hear just in the names that there's a lot of the everyday racism of the 1930s is just very front and center with the Asian supervillains. And what's interesting then is to trace how that changes over time. So in some ways, this is why the vision that Gene Roddenberry put together in 1966 for Star Trek on the air on NBC is a vision of men and women of different races and an alien working together on a starship that immediately establishes we're clearly far in the future, uh, but also becomes a really powerful vision of that kind of integration working. And where we see it played out in toys is in some places, it tends to be a leading indicator. The toys often integrate before the actual space crews do. So there were Barbie outfits to make Barbie a Miss Astronaut as early as 1965, and there were not American women astronauts until the late 1970s. Uh, Or you have another toy, also Mattel, Major Matt Mason from the late 1960s. Most of those uh, little action figures that had their astronaut suits kind of as a part of their bodies, they had bendable little legs, and they had a wonderfully inventive set of vehicles that came with the Major Matt Mason set that you could buy separately and play with. But 
there was an astronaut figure that was an African-American astronaut. Not, however, sold as a part of any of the sets, only ever sold as its own kind of one pack thing. So you could get Major Matt Mason into individuals or you can get sets, but the sets never included the African-American toys. So the assumption then I think built into the way the manufacturer is putting it together is that only African-American families, for instance, would be interested in purchasing that toy and adding it to the complement of the regular um, here are the quotes around that word, um, mm-hmm. toys that they might have given to their children. It then changes again when you get to the 1970s, things like Star Wars toys, which have a whole array of male and female figures and also human figures as well as aliens. And you're then you know, playing with these and setting up stories that you might have seen in the movies, they might have remembered from watching in the movie theater, but you may also be creating your own stories with those. You start to see that story about who can participate in the exploring and how you can be the author of those stories and inhabit those characters through your play in lots of different ways. So I think that's part of the power of the space craze. That's part of the power of Americans' enduring fascination with spaceflight is the way that this basic archetype that gets set in the 1930s with Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon and gets exported all over the world and then uh, echoed back in all of these different ways that it get, continues to evolve, that it's changeable, that it's malleable, and that it reflects the time in which it's being produced and reproduced and always then has that power for the fans, the players who are watching, who are participating to take it and make it their own, to change how they want to play with it or how they want to interact with it, how they might imagine their own fan fiction or their own cosplay or playing with different parts of these franchises in ways that people really make their own but then also really make their own. And clearly like that changes culture. Um, We see, you know, science fiction franchises getting, getting more and more representative of the population. I would expect directly because of those people's involvement in culture. But do you think that that affects the way that we look at who can fly in space and and who can be an engineer in space? I do think that the same culture that's producing the fictional visions of what spaceflight could be in the imagination is also shaping how spaceflight is actually being executed. So if we look at the story of the Mercury astronauts, who were an extraordinary group of seven gentlemen who were chosen by NASA in April of 1959 to be the very first astronauts, military trained jet test pilots, um, great personal courage, great personal flying abilities, and a really homogenous group. So much so, I include a picture in the book where they are lined themselves up alphabetically so that those who are captioning the picture will get their names right because they look so much alike that sometimes the uh, media would mix them up. But that is seen in that 1950s moment as emblematic of their quality right, that they have made it to the top of this very exclusive pyramid, uh, which was not open to women, which was largely by practice, if um, certainly not by law, but by practice, 
not open to African-Americans or those other than white men getting to the top of this. And that becomes a very different story in the 1970s, for instance, when NASA really wants the new astronaut program that they are developing mission specialists to come in and be a part of the space shuttle program. There's a real interest in having that better reflect the face of America. So they want to make sure there are women. They want to make sure there are people of color. Now, it turns out to be a smaller group out of 35 new people. They pick six women, three African-Americans and one Asian-American man. And they actually went back to those fictional visions as a powerful illustration of what they were looking for. So NASA hired Nichelle Nichols, the African-American actress who famously played Lieutenant Uhura on the original Star Trek, and she did a public relations campaign for the space agency in anticipation of that astronaut selection group saying really there's space for everyone and that this agency was very interested in having a more diverse mission specialist class. So... I think in those ways, you really see this relationship between the way that, you know, that imagination can actually then put some meat on the bones for what people want that vision to be eventually. And we've seen that, again, in, you know, incremental ways continue up to now where NASA with the Artemis program is talking explicitly about a return to the moon with the first woman to stand on the moon and the first person of color to be a part of that crew. Uh, And we are awaiting the first launch of Artemis one just in the next day or so. So, so speaking of Nichelle Nichols, um, NASA's spaceflight programs are strongly driven by public interest, uh, through Congress, right? Um, mm-hmm. And the the public's interest in in spaceflight was kind of dwindling as Star Trek uh, was starting to come out. Um, and m- my belief and assumption is that Star Trek helped keep NASA's spaceflight programs going because it helped keep people's interest in space. Could you speculate at all what what today's spaceflight uh, environment would look like if Star Trek hadn't been there? Mm, That's a great question because that really becomes a powerful driver, not only for that vision of integrated space crews, men and women of different races together and even half alien uh, in that initial crew, but also just the ways that um, it allowed people to get excited about what that vision could be of taking the best of ourselves out into space. I think part of where space science fiction has been so powerful has been in the ways that it allows us to play out both our hopes and also our worst fears. So it's both dystopian and you know very utopian. And that I think speaks to the malleability of those visions And that has been, I think, intricately linked to people's excitement about actual space flight. So what really resurrects NASA is the first flights of the space shuttle in 1981 and the uh, boom and excitement around the idea that this is the people's spacecraft, that this is something that ordinary people might soon be able to find themselves uh, sharing a seat on, because I think that has been a powerful driver. When we look at human spaceflight, we're often imagining that we're seeing through that person's eyes. We know that that was a picture taken by a person, not just by a probe, even those are though those are directed by people. 
So I think that Star Trek vision is really an important part of that. And part of what I try to describe in chapter four, when I really dig into some of those early fan magazines and the early ways that people were getting excited about that and finding each other as a fan community is the way that that um, model for that kind of fan activity becomes a model, not only for how other franchises and other science fiction fandoms find their way to each other and to that kind of collective enjoyment, but it becomes something that uh, we see also space flight enthusiasts carrying out as a way to connect with each other and support what NASA is doing. So I think it's hard to imagine much around space without that Star Trek vision and the Star Trek fans from the 1970s that were so pivotal. So in writing this book, obviously, I guess you're trying to cover as much of pop culture and uh, and how it relates to spaceflight as possible, but there are some things that you might have to leave out. So what items did you maybe have to leave out of this book? Because uh, there's just so much of science fiction that you could go into. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of wondering, you know, like what was maybe the most interesting thing that you couldn't put in the book? I feel like talking about this book is going to be a continual process of people saying, well, what about this? Do you, did, mm-hmm. did you have Buckaroo Banzai in there? And like, no, I didn't. Um, you know, there are so many television programs, comic series, um, movies, other kinds of things that um, don't necessarily find their way into the book. Most of literary space science fiction doesn't necessarily find its way into the book. And that's in large part because I organized the book around things. And you don't often get physical memorabilia that comes out of literary series. So, you know, the joke I make in the book is that, you know, think about how few Isaac Asimov action figures you've seen. Um, (laughs) They don't necessarily turn into t-shirts and pencil toppers and pins and patches and buttons and coffee mugs, which then become things that a museum curator can put a tag on, put on exhibit and uh, collect for the national collection. So that whole literary vision of space science fiction gets a little undertreated in here. And I feel like then there are also other places where things are probably undertreated. I'm a big fan of Firefly, the connections between that um, space vision and the Western, that mashup that Joss Whedon did in the 1990s had a lot more potential. Um, I think the fans uh, of that would agree, would have liked to have seen that gone farther. It -hmm. also then had, you know, some stuff, but not very much stuff around it. And so I think it's probably a little bit undertreated in the book. Um, And I find that as I've been talking about the book to people that um, when they ask, you know, well, do you have this particular thing in space craze? I'm often thinking, oh, you know, and I'm going to start having files of stuff that should have been in the book um, that isn't and that could probably be a whole second book of a similar set of arguments about the ways that those kinds of toys or games or television series or movies would have illustrated the story that I was telling in chapter three or chapter five, just as well as some of the other things that I did choose. It was driven in large part by what's in the collection. And I think that a national collection, while being systematic, is also just as esoteric and opportunistic as anyone's personal collection. It depends on what becomes available to the Smithsonian for us to get. We're 
often seeking things, but we rely on donations uh, from collectors or from others for the formation of that collection. So even as it is literally curated, it is also somewhat opportunistic and depends on what a collector's interests were that we were then able to translate into the collection. Hmm. So is there an object that you would like to have in the museum that you don't yet have? I'm talking to someone about a group of major Matt Mason toys, um, and I'm particularly fascinated by the Jeff Long African-American figurine, as well as the vehicles, because they were really terribly creative and not very practical. There's a wonderful little hamster bubble of a rickshaw style conveyance that the little astronaut figure sits in a little seat in the inside of a clear bubble of plastic. And as the bubble is pulled and rolls along the floor, the weighted seat stays upright and the little figurine would sit upright even as the bubble rolls around it. So that I think is um, just wonderfully uh, fun in terms of the play and how it might imagine crossing a planetary or a lunar surface. So um, there are other examples of Barbie in space that I've been interested in. Um, there are, there was a play set that went along with G.I. Joe in uh, the 1960s where G.I. Joe was a Mercury astronaut. And um, I've talked to people about that in the past, but we don't have that in the collection. I suspect that many people's um, G.I. Joe Mercury astronauts suffered from what I know my husband's did, which was one too many water landings in the in a bathtub or <laughs> rough landings on uh, on the stairs or on the on the playroom floor. So um, being able to find these things in good shape, I think, is a kind of rare and wonderful thing. And then I'm always looking for where does it tell that larger story or tell that deeper story and not just kind of the most complete collection of absolutely everything. There are ways in which a museum collection intersects with, but is very different from what a collector's collection is, where you might be aiming for the rarest piece or an autographed piece or a real set of completeness in terms of, say, accessories. And for the museum, we're not necessarily looking to get one of everything uh, so much as that we're looking for these rich stories that tell multiple aspects of the object, tell different stories. I thought for sure David's question was going to get you to tell the story of the Cabbage Patch doll. Uh, could you tell that, that story? I certainly. <laughs> I open every chapter with the first person account of me dealing with objects at the museum. And in part, because I think that the vision of curators and of museums is that we already know all of the things and we have all of the stuff and we only are telling large, complete stories. And in fact, it often starts with gaps and it starts with the curator asking an awful lot of questions. We know that there was a line of Cabbage Patch dolls, those very collectible dolls that were popular, the It toy in the early 1980s, that were very individualized so that each one came with an adoption certificate with a name and a set of characteristics that were actually collated by computer so that the eye color and the hair color and the skin tone were slightly individualized for each of these toys as you were buying them. And we know that there was a set of these that were uh, themed with the young astronaut program and came in a little spacesuit and a little spaceship shaped box. 
I've not been able to find either of the ones. There was one that was flown on the space shuttle and that was then returned to the young astronaut program. And there was one that was given to President Reagan at a White House ceremony. And when I finally tracked it down, the paperwork on that, what we found is that the White House gave it to a charity toy drive for Christmas that year. They didn't think it was something that they needed to add to the presidential gifts Um, and that would then go to the presidential library. We have a record fact that it went to a charity toy drive and somewhere some child who got a coveted young astronaut cabbage patch toy for Christmas or Hanukkah that December actually got the one that had been in person presented to the (laughs) president of the United States. That is wild. And, and and flown in space or the one that the president two different ones there was one that was flown in space and then there was one that was presented to the president and um they were done in close succession there was i was wondering if for some time if there was perhaps only one doll that we were looking for Mm. um and of course the getting in touch with the folks at Babyland General who are still the keepers of the cabbage patch flame um and who are lovely people and we're very sure that the flown, the space flown toy was at the Smithsonian. And I looked, it's not an American history. We don't have it at the Air and Space Museum. I don't have any records of it coming into the Smithsonian at any point. Um, But we do have the clear records of the one that went um, to President Reagan, because anything that goes to the White House, they keep very good track of, except that at the time, nobody really thought that was a historically important piece Um, cultural things in some ways uh, for a time have not been self-evidently important as tellers of a larger story about politics and people and science and technology. And that's part of what I think we've all discovered collectively in the last few decades and makes it doubly fun to kind of run back through those kinds of objects as an historian and run that story all the way back to the 1930s and see how it has changed over time. So we got a bunch of really good photos uh, from you. And one of them is called Last Ramsey Room uh, researcher, September 2018. Um, yes. And it's it's a photo of you sitting at a, a desk in front of a bunch of stacks, like library stacks. C- could you tell us about this photo? So the Smithsonian has wonderful collections, library, archives, artifacts. And so part of the fun of getting to be a researcher within the Smithsonian system is being able to have that kind of access to it. So the Ramsey Room is unfortunately now defunct. It was part of the old design of the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum's building on the National Mall. And it was essentially the rear books room. And that is a picture of me doing some research for this book and also for another article that I wrote about um, how we have imagined faster than light travel over time. But it was a chance to really go in and look at some of these original texts that go as back as far as the 1630s of imagining trips to the moon and then running that all the way you know, through to the present and connecting that with the objects that we have in the collection. So being able to, that's more often the kind of research that people expect historians to be doing. And there's an awful lot of that in space craze. And to that, then I wanted to add 
the object investigations because I think that a guided close looking at things can tell us uh, important stories just as much as reading them in a book or discerning them for someone's personal letters. I love this photo as well because it talk it, it, like it really shows a lot of the the work aspects or the the aspects of your work that almost anybody else doesn't have to deal with. Uh, I can see uh, a bracelet and some rings sitting on the table, which I'm assuming you had to take off before you handled um, some of these objects. And then there are also uh, foam wedges, which I'm assuming are to protect the spines of some books. Could you talk about the, yes. the practical aspects of actually interacting with these objects? So the practical aspects of interacting with historic materials often vary depending on the kind of materials. So for objects, we almost always wear nitrile gloves, which are basically, uh, you know, a, a thin surgical style glove that keeps you from getting fingerprints all over things. The acids in your fingertips will, over time, etch metals, will, um, you know, you know that if you put your hand straight on a glass surface, you can easily see that you're leaving behind oil and fingerprints. And so we want to avoid that when we're dealing with objects. You don't use those when you're dealing with paper. Uh, you want to actually have the dexterity in your fingertips to not rip the pages by fumbling around in gloves. You will use white cotton gloves if you're handling photographs to make sure that you don't leave fingerprints on those um, prints themselves. Um, and then, yes, often I find myself taking off rings, watches, bracelets, making sure that I've taken off my official government ID, which is usually in a lanyard around my neck so that I don't lean forward and knock it into something. So I'm always trying to be cognizant of you know, the kinds of materials that I'm working with when we're working in a workshop space, whether that's our conservation lab or our preservation lab. One trains oneself to keep one's hands behind your back mm. <laughs> um, so that you don't have the temptation to reach out and in gesturing at something when telling a story as a curator is wont to do, or when pointing at one detail to lose track of something else that's in the foreground and mm. accidentally knock into it. Um, but also not to step backwards that very often you're in a space that's essentially a warehouse space and you want to make sure that you don't lose track of where you are in the space and step back and kick something or step back and simply turn your ankle on the stand for an object that's behind you. So it does require some careful treatment in order to make sure that when you're working with objects that you get a chance to handle them as carefully as you can in that particular bit of archival work um, doing library research. Yes, we have book supports that then hold the book open so that you can take notes on them and so that they'll stay open enough for you to take your cell phone picture or to take your notes on your computer, but not so much so that you crack the bindings um, and cause problems for having pages come out. Um, one also gets used to always writing with a pencil, not a pen, so you don't mm -hmm. inadvertently write on historic documents. Um, and my personal bugaboo is really, really working very hard not to lick my finger before I turn page uh, <laughs> in order to, because that's a habit of mine as a personal reader, and it cannot be a habit of mine when I'm an archival reader. That's really cool. That's somewhat related to question that I had had. What's the ratio, I guess, of how much the Smithsonian, of how much of it's public that the public gets to see versus archives and other supporting facilities that you know, you're doing the kind of day-to-day -day work on? So 
our numbers and our proportions are shifting right now because we're undergoing this massive renovation of the National Mall building and we're putting more objects on display. But even then, we're also bringing some things off display. You can't have things out all of the time or they fade subject to light the same way that your couch or your carpet will or that when you move the pictures off the wall in your rental apartment, you suddenly realize that's what color that paint used to be Mm. and it's now faded or it's gotten dirty. Um, and so we want to make sure that we are keeping these things not only as exhibit objects, but as research pieces so that the next generation of scholars can come along and learn about the history of aviation and spaceflight through inspection of the actual things. That's in many ways our real job as a museum is as an object library, not just as an entertainment display space, although we take that very seriously as well and want to be able to educate people about the real history of what happened by allowing you to encounter the real objects. Mm-hmm. So we'll also occasionally have duplicates of things in on the space side of the house. We often are thinking about what kinds of things tell the story of spacecraft that go into space. Only the very rare ones get to come back. And when they do, it's often only parts of them. So the Saturn V rocket that took off to take the astronauts to the moon was 363 feet tall. What comes back is the singular command module with its heat shield and what fits inside that. And it's really, you know, it would fit into a decent sized living room. Hmm. So a tremendous um, hierarchy that we have where we are often using engineering models to show what a spacecraft looks like when we don't have the flown one to be able to put on display. For toys and memorabilia, as I've said, often the collections rationales that we have diverge from what a collector might do, where you might want to put things all on display. We'll be wanting to show a range of a kind of toy, uh, the rarity of things, but also the typical ones, the ones that everybody would have had a chance to play with can be a very rich way of telling that story rather than here's the one that almost nobody ever got Mm -hmm. to see. So um, those are the kinds of decisions. And then we think of ourselves as in the forever business. And so if we're bringing it into the collection, we are dedicating the nation's resources to keeping it nice for generations. And that means that we need to be judicious. And as much as curators are thought of as those who want to kind of greedily put our arms around everything and bring it all in. In fact, we say no far more often than we say yes. Um, Not because things aren't worthwhile or worthy, but because we have to be really um, discerning in what we bring into the collection so that we can dedicate the resources to keeping them stable. And that also means we tend to favor things that are in themselves materially stable. So in the spaceflight universe, you find um, mission emblems, both as stickers or decals, as well as as embroidered mission patches. An embroidered mission patch is a more stable thing than something that has an adhesive on it. You know that if you found an old sticker um, from years ago, somewhere, you know, stuck in your bookshelves, it's either gummy or it's completely dried out. And in that, it's kind of lost some of its inherent material nature as what it was. So if I can bring that emblem in in an embroidered patch rather than in a decal, I'll favor that because it has greater longevity. I don't know if this is a question you could answer, but what is 
what is about as fragile an item as you do have actually in your <laughs> in your collection it's not in the in the social and cultural collection i would have to think about it we have a um we have a spacecraft that chased the tail of a comet and has aerogel in these little cells which are basically an almost 80 plus percent air gel that then was able to capture the particulate from that comet tail and bring it back to earth and that material is some of the most fragile, friable. You really physically almost cannot <laughs> touch it. Um, and yet we you know, are committed to trying to um, preserve that. Uh, looking at something like the James Webb Space Telescope um, that is in space, it's not coming back, but the pieces that are on Earth that I've seen are crisscrossed with um, thread-thin wires that are incredibly delicate mm. and one would have to be very very careful about how one hung or dusted or uh kept track of that so i think for the space fi science fiction collection the tribbles we have a handful of original tribbles from the trouble with tribbles episode from mm. the original star trek television series and they're actually very durable they are little balls of polyester fur, but it's very challenging to make them have a good hair day without, <laughs> you know, quite too much intervention that um, they tend to come out a little, they tend to come out of the boxes a little bit flat and it tends to be hard to keep them on display without them ending up a little droopy looking. Thank you for that fascinating talk, Margaret. Uh, this is actually pretty fun to hear about. I actually learned a lot of stuff about science fiction, science, and how it intersects with spaceflight specifically, but because I kind of thought I already knew it all. But um, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, because I, I mean, I am a sci-fi geek, but uh, there's some things that you mentioned that I didn't know anything about. Um, but anyway, um, let's get on to our penultimate question, which is where would you like to be found on the internet? The National Air and Space Museum's website is uh, air and space spelled out air and a n d space dot s i dot e d u and so you can uh, find me there and lots of other information about what we have at the museum and then my twitter handle is at m g t w space uh, because no one can spell Whitey Camp. That's fun. And um, uh, you can also find me under my name, Margaret Whitey Camp, on Facebook. Um, we'll also have links to buy Space Craze um, because I, I can't recommend this book enough. It, it's a really fantastic book. Thank you very much. Uh, okay. So our final question um, really is more of a game show than a question. Um, it's a game that I stole from uh, NPR's Planet Money. It's called Overrated Underrated. Um, and so it's just a, a quick fire list of products or concepts. And we would like you to tell us if the world sees too much value in them, too little value in them, or, you know, correctly values them. Does that does that sound good? Okay. I understand. Okay. All right. So first, uh, overrated or underrated space-flown commemorative objects? I don't think those can be overrated. I think those are a rare and wonderful <laughs> thing. Do you own any? No, I don't think I do. And uh, curators try very hard not to collect in the same area that we're working in professionally. So I actually um, am very judicious in my acquisition of things. Overrated or underrated museums? Underrated. A great mm -hmm. afternoon, a wonderful place to spend, especially with family or friends. I think museums are 
thought of often as a place you go by yourself, but really it's the place you want to go with a group so you can have those conversations. Overrated or underrated, Snoopy in space? Underrated. Snoopy in space is more important than people realize, and NASA's highest award for spaceflight workers is in fact the Silver Snoopy, awarded by astronauts themselves. Overrated or underrated, Star Trek Voyager? Ooh, <laughs> I'm going to go underrated. I've always been a fan of Voyager, um, big fan of uh, Kate Mulgrew as Janeway, and um, actually had to watch bootlegged VHS tapes of it when it was first out because <laughs> my cable company didn't carry it at the time. Overrated or underrated uh, university satellite and payload programs? Underrated, again, I think the opportunity for students to see their work going into space and to be a part of that even an amateur or you know student level is incredibly important. Well, I I am so sad that we've run out of time. This has been the best hour of conversation. Thank you so much for carving out time. Thank you for writing the book and uh, ha have a great rest of your week, I guess. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. to this weekend in spaceflight history we have a bunch of correct answers we have a valentin frank henry Cy Kyle, and we also have the bonus points for leon running man uncle willie deathkin and the greek and the clue was jumping off a not yet dead rock and i guess that was a pretty i mean you thought it was a hard clue but i estimated yeah my my estimation of uh the difficulty was based in the idea that rock would be interpreted R-O-C-K, and the people would have to make the connection to R-O-C. Uh, and then I remembered that the clue is posted in text form in the show <laughs> notes, which makes things a lot easier. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these people got it anyway. It's not an obscure vehicle. I guess you just gave away what the vehicle was. I, I mean, did but not. Maybe some people yeah. have not. Yeah. Well, maybe some people haven't heard of what yeah. Yeah, that particular vehicle is, the R-O-C. So what is the R-O-C? Well, it, it, it <laughs> It is uh, rock. pronounced rock. Sorry. Sorry um, you're right, rock. Okay. I, and I've made that mistake before because I remember talking about it probably several years ago and I kept saying ROC and you're like, no, it's not an acronym. It's just rock. Yeah. It was a mythical creature. Ima imagine if ABL space systems made a vehicle called rock, <laughs> then you and I would be toast. Between the two of us, <laughs> yeah. we, we would have a complete pronunciation. Okay. This week in spaceflight history is the 27th of November 2012. Not super far <laughs> back in history, but far enough uh, to make it into our document. Uh, 27th of November, 2012. It was the end of Falcon 9 Air's development. So uh, FYI, SpaceX used to have an air-launched version of Falcon 9 called F9A. Um, it, it's sort of a weird, uh, a weird dead end um, in the Falcon... Uh, lineage. Um, of course, like uh, Falcon 5 was also planned. Um, and Falcon 9 Air was, uh, it, it's a bit of a misnomer because at first, um, concept photos showed five Merlin 1D engines. Um, but then later on, uh, it was confirmed to have two, or uh, sorry, four Merlin 1D engines. The F9A also had uh, something that never uh, even got close to appearing in any uh, in any Falcon uh, product, unless you consider, I guess, grid fins. But it had a top-mounted uh, rear wing on the booster, 
and I haven't said much about it. So if you haven't heard uh, about F9A, I hope that you are thoroughly confused at this point. It was a slightly lower capacity uh, vehicle um, comparing to uh, you know today's Falcon 9, um, but it, it was still pretty darn chunky. It was rated uh, to fly 6,200 kilograms to Leo or 2,300 kilograms to GTO. So why in the world was F9A a thing? Well, first we have to talk about Strata Launch Systems, which is a company that was founded uh, and financially backed by Paul Allen, uh, the Microsoft co-founder. Um, and it was a cooperation between SpaceX, Scale Composites, and Dynetics. And uh, I don't know when Strata Launch officially uh, started, um, but it was announced to the public uh, around the end of 2011. So to understand what Stratolaunch Systems, the company is, you have to understand what Stratolaunch, the system is. And it's a, a big launch vehicle uh, built by these three different companies. And I, I think uh, more people will be familiar with Stratolaunch than are familiar with F9A. F9A was a little bit of a footnote in the Stratolaunch history. So Scale Composites built this giant aircraft called Model 351, uh, also known as Stratolaunch, also known as ROC. ROC being uh, the mythical uh, winged creature that could uh, carry an entire elephant, I think. And Rock or Stratolaunch is a really, really insane vehicle. Um, it is a double-hulled carrier aircraft. It was designed by Burt Rutan, which makes two things a lot clearer. First, why it's called Model 351. That's a very Rutan uh, style of nomenclature. But also the fact that it's a double-hulled aircraft. Uh, Burt Rutan, if you're not familiar with him, is a Mojave Desert uh, crazy uh, aerodynamic vehicle innovator, right? Like he has uh, very strange ideas about what should be able to fly. Um, and he is able to pull off some really incredible designs. Some of them do have aerodynamic and engineering advantages, um, but to most people, they're just weird looking uh, in a really lovely way. Um, and so... Uh, you know, this gigantic vehicle with two whole, I mean, it, it's, it's like an outrigger, but an outrigger that flies instead of sails. And it, 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 it just makes sense when I uh, think about Burt Rutan designing it. It has the longest wingspan of any aircraft that's ever flown. Uh, its wingspan is 117 meters uh, for reference. That's 385 feet. The thing is bigger it's it's wider than a football field. It's just it's insane. The connecting wing between the two hulls um, had four main spars and four secondary spars, but so altogether had eight composite spars that helped hold this thing together uh, and make it rigid enough. Um, and the rock was powered uh, was is uh, powered by six Pratt & Whitney PW4056 engines. Uh, the PW4000, uh, I believe, is uh, on what, what powers the 
747. I might be getting this confused. Chris is in the chat. He'll let me know. <laughs> right. So that that's one third. The other extreme of this partnership is SpaceX. They built a rocket that was going to be launched uh, by by the Stratolaunch rock. Um, and then in between the two is Dynetics, who was the contractor in charge of mating and integration systems. So basically the release mechanism, the thing that connects the uh, rocket securely to the airplane until it's not supposed to be connected anymore. I, I just love the rock. It is an extraordinary aircraft. It could take off of a runway, but it needed... 12,100 feet worth of runway. Um, and so for reference, if you've ever flown into O'Hare, uh, O'Hare's uh, 23R runway is just barely long enough uh, <laughs> for the rock uh, to take off and land on it. But I believe that is the only <laughs> runway at O'Hare that could actually support rock. So this is like a space startup, like a new space company. So of course they have very, very lofty goals uh, that they don't mind talking about. And so it turns out Stratolaunch actually originally wanted to um, fly this as a cargo, a cargo vehicle, like a cargo launching system. Um, but they wanted to develop a human-rated version, which is amazing. The first flight of Rock was expected in 2015, and they were hoping to have their first launch no earlier than 2016. Turns out they definitely hit the, the NET target because they've never launched uh, a vehicle with this. So I referred to uh, Rock not yet being dead in the in the the clue. And I, I don't know if it's fair to say that Rock has died, that Stratolaunch has died. Um, but it's, you know, like, like for instance, they did a test flight uh, in January of 2022. So just like 11 months ago. But you know, I don't, I wouldn't put any money on this being a, uh, a complete system uh, in the end. I would be delighted if it was, though. If I, and I could be wrong, so I welcome correction burns, but if I remember, because like you're saying, the idea of this being just a, a launch vehicle provider is almost certainly not going to happen now, but they might be, mm -hmm. uh, I think, a test bed trying to like, you know, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, market themselves as, you know, you want to, <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty unique capability that they can provide. So if you want to test your whatever, you know strap it in the middle of this <laughs> absolute monster. Yeah. And, and that's, that's kind of the, that's kind of the problem is the whatever part of it. Cause like, mm. it's so huge who needs this capability, but yeah, I, I think that uh, is a, a fairly likely use case for this. Uh, but I'd be shocked if, uh, if they ever went to orbit with it, unfortunately, like it breaks my heart. Mm. I really want them to. It's a it's a gorgeously hideous vehicle. I mean, like it's not even hideous, is it? It's just a gorgeously weird vehicle. Mm. Okay, so anyway, whether or not you consider Rock to be dead, uh, you can definitely consider uh, Falcon Nine or Falcon Nine Air to be dead. So this whole endeavor required heavy collaboration between Dynetics and SpaceX because the the interfaces are what drive a lot of designs, right? And so Dynetics designing uh, this release mechanism really forces them to work closely uh, with whatever is going to be released by that mechanism. Mm. So what ended up happening in the end is Dynetics wanted the the Falcon 9, the F9A to have chines on it. 
And I'm not 100% sure why uh, that seems like, you know, SpaceX's design uh, regime. But in any event, adding chines and potentially fins uh, would require pretty thorough airframe redesigns uh, to actually make it happen. So uh, a chine is sort of a, a weird word. I think everybody knows what a fin is, but a chine is basically a long fin. <laughs> um, and I, Dennis, I think uh, shuttle is a great example of this. Like you've got the delta wing, and that's the the triangle shape, and then leading forward from that is. Uh, another triangle shape, but it's a much thinner, shallower angle that when you compare it to uh, the sides of the of the spacecraft. Um, and so uh, chines are just really thin wings that, you know, stretch a long distance and are really small. They're fantastic for providing lift at high, uh, high velocities, which is why shuttle uh, integrated that into their uh, into their weird delta wing um, shape. But uh, SpaceX, I guess, thought that they weren't going to need it when they started the design. And as they were going along, uh, they really didn't want to depart from their ongoing development of Falcon 9 to uh, build uh, essentially a different vehicle is, is what uh, F9A would wind up being if they had to do uh, airframe changes that were, were drastic enough to support um, you know, additional surfaces. And so, um, yeah, if anybody knows why the integration team would want the rocket team to make aerodynamic changes. I would love to hear that. I don't think that that data is publicly available, though. So with SpaceX uh, departing, Strata Launch, the, the, the collaboration, needed to find another uh, rocket to do the, the final mile, as it were. And uh, Orbital actually stepped up and said, hey, yeah, we can, we can design a vehicle for that. And so their proposed vehicle was called Pegasus 2 or Thunderbolt. Um, Pegasus 2 had uh, solid lower stages and a cryogenic upper stage, although about a year after the initial proposal, um, they switched the upper stage uh, to solid as well. So it'd be a, an all solid vehicle. Um, unfortunately, Pegasus 2 only lasted for a couple of years. Uh, and by 2015, it was canceled. The, the Pegasus 2 concept was canceled. Uh, it just, the, the money didn't make sense. Um, but Orbital still had another vehicle that they could throw on there. And that was Pegasus XL. And what's really interesting about Pegasus XL is that it's much smaller uh, than either uh, Pegasus 2 or F9A. And so they they were going to put multiple Pegasus XLs in one, one carry flight uh, and presumably just like launch them off like fireworks one after the other. To give you an idea of how much smaller Pegasus XL is, its payload to low Earth orbit is 360 kilograms. Uh, doesn't even get a comma in there, not even close to a comma. And and so Pegasus XL would work, but like, what's the point? Like, we've built this gigantic vehicle. Uh, we should use it to at least close to its capacity. And so they started designing a, uh, a strata launch specific like in-house uh, launcher 
Uh, at one point, Stratolaunch bragged that they were evaluating over 70 different variants uh, of some mysterious and uh, undisclosed <laughs> rocket. Uh, n- no idea what it what it actually looked like. I wasn't able to find anything anyway. And uh, Sam in the chat points out, this is very cool. I don't think I ever, I don't think this is something that I forgot. I don't think I ever knew this. But according to people involved, Stratolaunch at some point were actually intending to launch Firefly Alpha. And this is like Firefly Alpha Alpha, the original Firefly Space Alpha, not Firefly Aerospace Alpha. So the Alpha with um with an aerospike. Which would be so cool. Like how many weird technologies can you put together in one <laughs> launch system? Just, just lovely. And, and there, there are even rumors that, that Firefly wound up collapsing because Stratolaunch pulled their funding, um, which would really be um, a, a bit of a terrifying sequence of events just in terms of like what could have been. So uh, back to the death of Rock uh, or the uh, rumored death of Rock. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Paul Allen died back in 2018 um, in I think like October uh, of 2018. And that spelled the beginning of the end of Stratolaunch uh, as it was originally conceived. They were in the middle of some of their very first um, taxi tests uh, when when Paul Allen passed away. And um, they wound up doing sort of a notable taxi test, which is a high-speed taxi test where they were actually able to get enough lift to lift the nose gear off the runway. And, and that happened uh, like January 2019, like very beginning of 2019. Um, and shortly after that test, they announced that they uh, had stopped working on this in-house rocket uh, that that could potentially uh, be the the Pegasus two replacement. Actually, you know, I suppose it would have been uh, potentially the replacement for Firefly Alpha. I have a feeling that these things were being developed concurrently, like these ideas were all happening at the same time so that they had options. Mm. Uh, but anyway, they they uh, decided not to develop a rocket and they had a couple of uh, test flights, uh, notably a two and a half hour, the, the maiden flight of this vehicle was two and a half hours and that happened in April of 2019. Um, but Stratolaunch, uh, or at least the assets of Stratolaunch, uh, were put up for sale in June of 2019. Now they were purchased, uh, by a company that specializes in, f- uh, getting failing companies back on their feet. They buy assets cheap and then, uh, try and get, uh, try and get their money back out of it. Um, I believe the company is called Kerberos, but yeah, uh, the, the three-headed, uh, dog, uh, Kerberos probably doesn't mean spot, but it might mean spot. And I love the idea of a hell dog being named spot. (laughs) Um, but anyway, so, so they bought the, uh, the company and they have, they have been continuing on. It looks like they're, uh, doing this, uh, this focus swap from orbital launch to, uh, you know, flight test bed. I, I don't think that strata launch, the, the carrier, the rock, uh, flies very fast. So it's, you know, it's not like a, 
uh, supersonic test bed, which could be really nice. But, um, you know, if you, if you want to get something up in the air and not have to worry about it, not flying, <laughs> this would be a great way to do it. Um, I'm fairly confident you could put, you know, a Cessna, uh, in between these two holes and, and get it up in the air. It's, it's just a gigantic vehicle. So Leon in the chat actually, uh, pointed out that they flew last month, believe it or not. Very cool. They actually flew Talon A, which is their, like, their hypersonic test vehicle. Um, they, you know, it was just a captive carry. They didn't, um, they didn't release it or anything. Um, and it, it's, there's some wonderful photos, uh, that you'll be able to find in the show notes because, uh, Talon is a tiny, tiny, tiny little vehicle <laughs> and it's slung under, uh, this absolutely gigantic wing. But yeah, like I, I totally, I, I hope that that strata launch becomes, uh, a, a profitable enterprise. Like I really hope that they can continue to, to fly this. I don't know if I want to call rock majestic, but definitely interesting vehicle. Uh, I would love to be able to see it on my occasional visits back to Southern California. I'm really mostly just bummed that they're not flying to space anymore. Uh, because to be able to put that much payload into orbit from an aircraft is just delightful. But there you go. That's uh, this week in spaceflight history. That took some twists and turns I didn't anticipate. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, cool. Well, I mean, the, the, the involvement of Firefly and just their in-house stuff. Like, I didn't know any of yeah. that at all. I just thought this was... Yeah, I didn't know that either. Oh, yeah, for real. Well, and it, it's unconfirmed, so like I wouldn't talk about it as fact, but like that's a totally reasonable rumor, and like that's very cool. Well, thank you for that very cool twist, Ben. So, David, you have next week's twist, which is the 29th of November to the 5th of December. Do you have a clue for us? Yes, I do. So, next week in 2014, the clue is this. Can, can you put in uh, a good word for Elmo? Yes. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? I love that. And so if you think you know what that clue is referencing, uh, you can tweet at us with the hashtag ThisWeekSF or send us an email and good luck. Good luck. Cool. So with that, let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. We got eight different events. So quite a few this week, uh, mostly launches, some other things as well. What's the first? We have our first of five different yeah. launches this week from five different countries, assuming they all go. Really cool. And so this is November 24th, and it's a Long March 2D. And if you, like me, have trouble keeping track of them all, this is the two-stage Hypergall where if you add some strap-on boosters and human rate it, it becomes the 2F, which is the crewed vehicle from China. And so this one with, you know, without those boosters and less payload, will be taking the Yaogan 36 Group 3 um, satellites to orbit, so the, to LEO. So these are three Chinese military military reconnaissance satellites. And so uh, this will be launching from Xichang, which is in southern China, and uh, out of Launch Complex 3, uh, again on November 24th, with a window from 1338 UTC to 1359 UTC. And then after that, on November 25th, we have the we have a launch uh, from Arian Space, or from Arian Espas. I always forget how to pronounce it correctly. Um, and this is uh, a Vega C, and is launching Pleiades Neo 5 and 6. So these are two more satellites in a constellation, uh, which will make up a total of four optical high-resolution uh, satellites. And they both serve civilian in 
and military purposes. I think we've uh, talked about them before. Mm -hmm. They'll be put into a sun-synchronous orbit, uh, launching from Kourou, uh, French Guiana, and uh, from launch area 1. And the launch time is on the 25th at uh, 01.47 hours UTC. So again, a very, very early launch, just like the Artemis launch, so I probably won't be watching that one, mm -hmm. but... Sorry, I just realized zero one UTC. That's not that late. <laughs> like if you're on the oh, east coast right. of America or anywhere yeah. west of that, yeah. Okay, then after that we have a Russian spacewalk. So this is uh, spacewalk fifty six. Um, I believe we talked about this last week. Is that right? The radiator. Yeah the 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 recent spacewalk was setting it up, and this one I think the era European robotic arm is actually going to reach over and yoink it. And so there you go. So they're going to be moving uh, that radiator from Rosvet to Nauka. Um, the coverage on NASA TV is going to start Friday, November 25th at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. The spacewalk is scheduled to begin at 6.15 a.m. Eastern Time and should last around seven hours. And then next on November 26th, we have our ISRO launch of the week. And so this will be the PSLV uh, rocket taking taking OceanSat-3, uh, which is uh, a spacecraft uh, that will go to sun-synchronous orbit uh, and as part of ISRO's OceanSat program where it's ocean uh, observation. So ocean color, uh, sea surface temperature measurements, and wind vector data. So pretty cool stuff there. And so this will be launching out of Siharakota. I think it's on the southern eastern coast of uh, India, if I remember correctly. Okay, cool. And so, yeah, uh, again, on November 26th with a window from 0600 to 1000 UTC. And also just a quick shout out to Skyroot Aerospace and their Vikram S suborbital launch that was successful. Good for them. The first private launch from India ever. Very cool. And then after that, on the 27th, we have the we have the launch of GLONASS-M, number 61. So this is a launch by Russian Space Forces, which I feel like I haven't heard of, but <laughs> they have been around for a long time. I just guess we don't see them launching many things. But um, yeah, we don't know if the GLONASS is actually the payload, so the payload has not been confirmed. There's a little bit of speculation that maybe that's not what's going up. Uh, so uh, quite possibly actually classified. I don't know. Maybe this is just a... What would you call it? A smoke screen? Is that the right term? That <laughs> would work. Yeah, might be. Uh, smoke yeah. screen <laughs> in that context. Yeah. So it's uh, launching from Plesetsk Cosmodrome uh, from 43L. The launch window is from 1500 UTC through 1730 UTC. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess continue to speculate on the payload <laughs> uh, since that's about as much as you can do. So after that, we have another launch. This is Hakuto R M1 and Lunar Flashlight. So Hakuto R is really cool. It is, uh, I believe, Japan's first commercial lunar lander, and it's developed by iSpace, a, a familiar, uh, uh, a familiar name in the commercial spaceflight uh, regime. Don't need fancy words for this, <laughs> um, but yeah. So uh, a, a lunar lander, very cool. And then Lunar Flashlight, um, which I totally thought had flown before. Lunar Flashlight is a CubeSat uh, that's going to go into a polar orbit of the moon. And it's going there specifically to look for water ice near the South Pole. Um, it's called the Flashlight. I think it has, is it active radar? It's dumping its own radiation onto the lunar surface and then watching the returns. I, I, like I believe it's radar. Kind of thing. Yeah, active sensing is a great word. I, I love the name Lunar Flashlight because they're <laughs> uh, 
their animations of it, it totally looks like it's a flashlight zipping around the moon. Um, Sam in the chat points out that it was going to be one of the Artemis One CubeSats, uh, but the development was a little slow, and so they hopped on this launch with Hakuto R, which is really nice because Hakuto R was originally uh, going to be its own payload, or it's it's it was going to be a ride along uh, with a geostationary uh, vehicle, and now it's got promoted to the primary payload and now lunar flashlight is a ride along kind of a fun mm -hmm. little twist all right so these two vehicles are going to be launching on a falcon 9 block 5 on monday november 28th at 0846 hours utc that's going to the moon so you can safely assume that it is launching out of cape canaveral uh, Slick 40 this time. And then our final event of the week is the second uh, EVA, and this is U.S. Spacewalk 82. And so you can find coverage of it on NASA TV on Tuesday, November 29th at 6 a.m. And the uh, the astronauts will be installing uh, another iRosa on the Starboard 4 truss. And so the spacewalk is scheduled to begin at 7.35 a.m. and expected to last up to seven hours. This will presumably also have uh, Josh Cassida and Frank Rubio uh, crawling around out there taking care of business. And uh, even though it's the second spacewalk of the week, who knows, maybe China will have another one on the Tiangong station. We can make another, have another trifecta. So fingers crossed. Very international week. It's fantastic. Yeah. All real. right. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. And with that, let's do about the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. Special shout out to Deathkin, Stanley for you, Chubby, Sam, the Greek, Leon Running Man, Zach, Chris, aka Sty Garfield, Colin, Delta V, Cy Kyle, Emery, and Gopal for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission badges, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you. Thank you.